This one I have an amazing um, falling in love story. Uh, it's uh, I think it's the best one um, personally, but. I'm going to tell the whole thing this morning because I simply don't know how to tell a story quickly. Um, but trust me, it's it's amazing. It's full of serendipity and tenacity and both human and divine intervention. And I absolutely love to tell the story. It's one of my favorite things to do. Sometimes I tell pieces of it, but most often to get the power of the story, I have to tell the whole thing um, and how it all pieces together. And trust me, it takes a minute. Um, it's best received with some movie popcorn and a soda handy because I'm not playing when I say it takes me a while to tell this story. Um, and uh, and I'm going to ask you, so how did you guys meet? And I just start laughing because I know what they're in for, even though I'm like, you don't know what you just did. Like I just and uh, and then we get to the story. And the story always begins with me being in college in Topeka, lost and struggling to end. Uh, bad relationship, and after languishing in Grandview in a horrible relationship, she had no plans to leave. And how miserable we both were um, before the night of our first, like, phone call. Um, and it's really fun to set up. But the best part is that you ever see me tell it in front of my kids. Like, we'll be sitting at dinner or something, and, and somebody goes, how did you guys meet? And my kids just, like, roll their eyes and sigh. Um, and not because they don't want to study, but because they've heard it a thousand times. Like, they, uh, maybe 10,000 times. They know the story. Um, most of my kids could probably tell the story verbatim with no notes. Like, they just, they, they know it. They, they've heard about how I made a list of the perfect woman, and my roommate at the time was like, I know the exact girl. And, uh, and it turned out to be um, Esther. They know about our first awkward phone call and our first date and our first kiss. And the way I took Esther's ex on a car ride to intimidate him to step out of the story, they know all about that part. Um, <laughs> They listen to a star on a whirlwind courtship on the wedding and a beautiful website to become a family story, not just because it's the beginning of our family, but because of the many, many, many retellings. Um, and last week, we started into this Old Testament story that I believe was a family love story, personally. I think the book of Ruth was the story told in the Boaz family about how great-grandma Ruth met great-grandpa Boaz, and they fell madly in love with each other in a barley field of all places. Um, and of course, like any good love story, it starts with how miserable everything was before they met. We, um, we talked last week about how pain and loss forged the bond between two women, Naomi and Ruth. Um, that was unbreakable, the kind of forge of life had taken these two women, one a Jew and one a Gentile, and melted them into almost a single metal. Um, we talked about how their relationship, uh, as tight as it was, was formed out there. It was formed in Moab, not in Israel. This, um, this was a friendship that was not created in the safety of, of church. And, uh, and Ruth um, did not originally fall in love with the people of God or even with Boaz. She originally fell in love with Naomi. Naomi was the one she got really attached to. And that relationship led Ruth both to a people and ultimately to her Savior. Um, we ended last week with Naomi and Ruth back in Bethlehem. Um, Naomi is bitter and spewing her pain on all of those around her. Um, and she has vowed to never leave Naomi's side. Um, or Ruth is vowed to never leave Naomi's side. And, and only today, don't just listen to this story like it's a Bible story or some history of some of the scripture. Listen as though you're sitting around the table and you're nibbling on the last remnants of a good meal or maybe some dessert. 
And some of those asked, uh, so Boaz, how did you and Ruth meet? And Boaz looks at Ruth and she looks back and they smile at each other because they love telling the story. And, uh, and maybe Ruth starts the tale. And it goes like this. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, um, let me go to the harvest fields and pick up some of the stocks of grain left behind by anyone um, who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. Ruth went out to gather um, grain behind the harvesters, and as it happened, she found herself working in the field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. While she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who's that young woman over there? Uh, who, does, uh, who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she's the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked, if uh, asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes to rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us. When you gather grain, don't go into any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. Uh, see which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. Uh, I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water that they have drawn from the well. <clears throat> Ruth fell at, her, at his feet and thanked him warmly. Uh, what have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. But I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come, uh, to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I'm not one of your workers. At no time, Boaz covered over. Come over here and help yourself with some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with the harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. When Ruth Went back to work again. Boaz ordered his young men um, let her gather grain right uh, right among the sheaves without stopping her, and put out some of the heads of barley from the bundles and drop them uh, on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley all day, and when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. She carried back to town and showed her mother-in-law. Uh, Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from a meal. Where did you gather this grain today, Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man whose fields she had worked. She said, the man I worked with today was named Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He was showing, showing kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our close relatives, one of the family redeemers. Then Ruth said, What's more, Boaz told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvesting is complete. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he has said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. Uh, You might be be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's field and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest uh, in the early summer. 
And all the while, she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. This is such a fun story. Um, the two lovers have now met. Um, and, of course, uh, the kids and grandkids listening to this story for the thousandth time know how it's going to end. Um, but it's just fun to hear how great-great-grandma Ruth first caught the eye of great-great-grandpa Boaz um, and how he was smitten by her right off the bat. Um, and, of course, before we really get into this, we have to do a little um, nerd work, because that's what we do that's going to inform um, the allegory here that we're diving into. Because what Ruth is doing in this story is gleaning. Um, it's called gleaning, and it was, uh, it's a really profound piece of this story. Um, so I see this in the days before tractors and combines and things like that powered farm utensils. Um, and so whenever the groundbreaking and the planting and the weeding and the harvesting was all done by hand. Um, so the way that wealthy landowners like Boaz would harvest a field was they had a wagon pulled by some kind of animal, a donkey or oxen or whatever, and, uh, and they would have humans, harvesters, follow behind the wagon and, and just pick as they walk. So they'd walk at a steady pace and they'd throw everything on and, and uh, onto the wagon as they passed. And, uh, and these were hired laborers who were paid and, and cared for by the landowner. Um, and that they could be both men and women. And the richer the, the landowner, the more harvesters he would have to, to harvest all of his fields and the faster they could kind of work through it. And as the team would work through the fields, they would, they would miss some. Or they would, you know, you would have like a little bump out in your, in your field. They, they call it the, the edges of the field where, you know, it was awkward to, to take the, the wagon out of the rows and then try to get back in. And so they would sometimes just leave those little corners, you know, unharvested. And then they would that while throwing grain on the wagon, some would fall off, you know. And, and, uh, and so you would drop some. And the really frugal and, frankly, successful landowners um, would try to find a, a day laborer or, or one of their laborers who was kind of hard up, and they would pay them to make a second pass over the field, to grab anything that was dropped, to, to get the stuff in the, in the little edges of the field and, and, uh, and the things that were missed, and to go over that. Oftentimes, they wouldn't even really pay the guy. They would just split with him anything he got, because it didn't pay to have your entire crew go over the field again. You wouldn't get enough grain to make that worth it. But, you know, to get somebody like, hey, if you want to go make a second pass in my field, I'll split with you, whatever you find. And and, uh, and then so they would get, like, a little extra grain. The landowner would get a little extra grain for free. And, uh, and this is how it happened all over the Palestinian area in this day. Like, almost all good landowners who are concerned about profit would always have what they would call their second pass. And they, there were different ways of getting it done, but, but it, was, it was what was done. Um, it was how it would have happened in Moab, where Naomi and Ruth just came from. Uh, except Israel was different. Israel was supposed to be different. Israel lived according to Torah, um, which is this amazing combination of religious texts and national history, and really the constitutional document for the entire nation. It was how things were supposed to be run in Israel. It was much more than just a, a book of do's and don'ts. It also had, hey, here's how you run a country that's just and, and that has um, a, a, a good legal system and, and a way for everybody to find justice and be taken care of. And part of that, was this concept called gleaning. 
Um, and it reads like this. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your field, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same for your grape crops. Uh, do not strip um, the last bunches of grapes from the vines, and do not pick the grapes up that fall on the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. So they were supposed to basically not make a second pass. Just leave that in the field so that the poor um, could have something um, to gather. And so it was, it was kind of a form of almost like welfare. It was a form of benevolence uh, instituted in the Torah um, for um, the poor. And last week we talked about how Naomi had been living in Moab for quite a while. We don't know exactly how long, but we do know that Ruth... Um, married Naomi's son while in Moab, and that they had been married 10 years before he died. So she's been there a while. And uh, long enough for it to probably start to feel like home. If you've ever lived in a house for 10 years, you know it feels like home very fast. Um, and, and yet when Naomi um, heard that the famine in her country was over, she immediately packs up and goes home. Um, and I personally, even though she really had nothing there, I personally think it was because of poor. It was because of things like gleaning. She knew her home country had ways of taking care of widows. And so she wanted to go back to Bethlehem now that um, the famine was over. Israel had something that no other country at the time had. Um, it was very, very novel at this time. No other historical documents from other cultures back then had anything like gleaning to care for the poor. They had this governmental system that cared for widows. Um, the China uh, actually cared for widows in two ways. Um, first was the storehouse. So every third year, your entire tithe of your profits, uh, land, animals, everything, went into the storehouse. And the storehouse... Um, cared for the professional ministers, the Levites, who didn't have land of their own. They, they cared for, um, for the things of God, and so they got to eat off the stiller house. But also, widows and orphans and, and foreigners who were staying in your land for a while, but they weren't really allowed to own land. Foreigners weren't allowed to own land in Israel, so they didn't have their own crops and stuff, so they could eat while they were staying in Israel off the, the stiller house. Um, and, and so it was basically a place to always catch a meal. Like, it, nobody was supposed to starve in Israel. You could always go to the storehouse and get a meal. Um, but if you ate at the storehouse, um, even though you wouldn't starve, you also couldn't get ahead. It was just a meal. You came and you ate, and then you left. That was all you had. So Paul also gave widows and foreigners um, an opportunity to work and gain um, a, little, a little wealth. Um, and that was called gleaning. Uh, basically, if you wanted to work, if you wanted to do something, um, something more than just a meal, um, you could find uh, a field and you could follow the harvesters and you could glean the field. And with that, you could sell it, you could store it, you could eat it, you could do whatever you wanted with it. It was a chance. So you could you could totally go to the store and have to eat your meal and then glean so you could have something to sell. Um, and, and make a little bit of money. So it was, it was a work program that you could use to actually start to get ahead a little bit. Um, and it was this incredible act of benevolence in the Torah itself um, for the nation to take care of their poor. Um, and it was instituted, and only Israel had this. Nobody else had anything like this um, in this day. And so it was kind of a special that was very Jewish. Um, it, was, it was profoundly Jewish to be able to do this. And so, 
Ruth, a Mennonites, um, having moved into a land with customs and rituals um, and things that were not her own, but at, but gave her opportunity, takes advantage of them immediately and basically gets to work. Like she says, hey. I'm going to go out and do this gleaning thing that you're telling me about, um, so we can so we can have some provision. And uh, as we established last week, um, that we want to study this book not only as a beautiful piece of prophetic history, because remember the Jews consider this book prophecy, because it's telling part of the, the David story, which then leads into the Messianic story, and so it's part of that kind of prophetic messianic line, that long thread of David's past that eventually leads to Jesus. Um, but it's also we want to look at as an allegory of how many of us come to a relationship with Jesus. Um, we talked last week about how many times people come to church not because they love Jesus or not even because they're curious about Jesus, um, but honestly because they like us. They, they get to know you and oftentimes people will come to church because they've formed a relationship with you and they want to know who your people are and they want to um, get involved uh, in that. Ruth fell in love with Naomi at the beginning of the story. Not Israel, not Israel's God, not Boaz, her redeemer. She falls in love with Naomi and she wants to go wherever Naomi goes. And Naomi goes uh, back home to the people of God and so Ruth comes with her. But, um, uh, so she falls in love with Naomi. Well, this week, Ruth begins to function and be a part of the community of God. She, uh, she, uh, she's partaking in the customs and habits and rituals of the Jews. This thing called gleaning that was a very Jewish thing, she's now partaking of that. She's living like a Jew, even though she's not a Jew. Bear in mind, Boaz in this story, is allegorically, is her savior. He's the redeemer. He's the family redeemer. And she's acting like a Jew... Long before she meets Boaz, she's gleaning a profoundly Jewish thing to do. I think this is very important to note for a couple reasons, and we're going to unpack those. First, gleaning is a Jewish practice, which means Ruth, while in Israel, is experiencing Jewish customs, Jewish things, Jewish liturgy, if you want to call it that. And here's why I think that's important. Um, Christianity for the last 2,000 years has gone, well, really the last couple hundred years has gone through some pretty major changes. Um, for the majority of Christian history, uh, the majority of the last 2,000 years, Christianity grew from being this faith system that was kind of this countercultural element of, of the wider power structure. Um, fairly quickly, about 300 years or so, it became the power structure. It became the shaper of culture. Like the majority of the wider culture was influenced by Christianity. And really, Christianity got to choose what the culture would look like. Um, so the church moved very quickly from being this small countercultural community to the real power structure. Um, and, and that means that culture was shaped by it. Um, and for the last couple hundred years, that started to change fairly quickly. Um, the majority of the time, the, the, the language of the church was the language of the culture. The taboos of the church was the taboos of the culture. The cliches and metaphors the church used, the culture also used, and so on. But the recent past has changed. In the last maybe couple hundred years, definitely in the last you know, 60, 80 years, there's been this exponential shift dramatic, where the church is now dramatically different um, than the culture, which has driven the church to make some kind of increasingly difficult decisions. Um, 
one of which for the past 60 years or so, 60 or 70 years, is that the church has been working to try and look more like the culture. A lot of us uh, call that being seeker-friendly, you know, where, where we try to make the church as close to the culture to make the, maybe the slide into church as, as smooth and, and, uh, and easy as possible. Um, it basically means that the church is trying to make Jesus as accessible as we possibly can for somebody who's not at all familiar um, with church. We try not to look like a church or sound like a church or really even act like a church. Um, and, and I genuinely believe this comes from a pretty good place, actually. We want to introduce people to Jesus, not necessarily church. Um, so we make the path of Jesus as smooth as and familiar as possible with very little to no culture lag, you know, is what we got to do. Um, because we want someone to miss out on Jesus because they get hung up on a piece of um, kind of obscure church culture. And, and so we we try to get rid of all that and just offer Jesus. And, and I understand that motive. I really do. Uh, but here's the issue I see with that. If I were to travel to France um, to experience France, and I stayed with a French family, um, I don't think I would want them to make sure I had hamburgers and the New York Times and American television and they only took me to places that spoke good American English. Um, if I wanted America, I would have stayed in America. Um, I go to France to experience France. Like, I want to know how French people live and how French food tastes and what French sites are and, and all those things. I, the reason I came here was to see how you do things. Um, and I think... And it can backfire. This can, some of them before my junior year in high school, our select choir in school went to Mexico City. We had like five or six concerts set up that we were going to sing at. And we had a blast um, and experienced some really cool Mexican culture, which in, it includes getting a bar fight with my mom, who's in the back. We, we, uh, you need to ask me that story sometime. I was. I was throwing little Mexican guys off this dance floor, and someone bumps into my back, and I turn around and get ready to punch him with my mom. She was throwing little Mexican guys off the dance floor, too. Um, it's a long story. I'll tell it to you sometime. It's, it's a great story. Kind of bust out with my mom in Mexico City. Um, <laughs> but one day, about the time of the sun, um, I buy a Mexican blanket. You guys know there's Mexican blankets everywhere? And, uh, and I was super excited uh, because I found one I really liked. And, uh, and as I was paying, it was a great piece of memorabilia. I can bring it home. As I'm paying, um, it was only 30 bucks. And as I'm paying, I'm like super stoked. And the guy's looking at me funny. I just give him my and taking my money. And I don't know why he's looking at me funny. But so I got on the bus and I'm bragging about my purchase. And it turns out the most email else on the bus, everybody had a Mexican blanket. The most email else on the bus paid was 15 bucks. One guy got here for five bucks. He was looking at me funny because he'd probably never seen anybody stupid enough to pay 20 bucks for the blanket. Because I had no idea part of the country was a different over price. I didn't know that. He said it was 30 bucks. I gave him 30 bucks. I took the blanket out of it, you know. And, uh, yeah, he had, he had never seen anybody stupid enough to do that, but that was me. Um, but even then, I was experiencing a piece of Mexican culture, which includes taking advantage of dumb Americans. Which, yeah, I got to play that role. Um, but one of, the, one of the reasons I love liturgy, and I love that, and we tell the prayer of contrition, and we, I love to say the Lord's Prayer, and we celebrate Advent and Lent, um, is because the majority of the church has done those things for 2,000 years. And when someone comes to church, I want them to experience church culture, not 
you know, this bait and switch thing that we've hooked up where, where um, you know, we and, and a lot of it didn't come from backgrounds that do those things. You know, a lot of us came from, from backgrounds that really, in the course of church history, have only existed about 10 minutes. Most of the things we're familiar with are really, really modern expressions of church. And church has been around for 2,000 years. And so I like to, to, to say, hey, this is kind of what the churches look like. Ordinary, modern, real people participating in this culture, uh, like normal people participating in this culture has been around for about 2,000 years. I like that approach to, to, to kind of embrace part of a wider culture than this very kind of new recent thing that a lot of us grew up in. I think it's important that someone um, who's not a follower of Jesus comes to Open Table, they experience the people of God doing people of God stuff. Um, not like we're inviting them or to a concert or a conference at some great entertainment venue and then kind of sneakily slide in an invitation to know Jesus. You know, uh, I don't want to do like that. I want when someone gets invited to church, I want them to come to church and experience what church looks like. Um, we don't, and, but we don't want to make meeting Jesus difficult or God forbid inaccessible. But we we do want our actual love for one another and our life-giving community atmosphere to be what actually draws people, not some gimmick that we come up with. We want to actually love people. When Ruth comes to Israel, she experiences Israel in a very Jewish way. Um, she's doing Jewish things with Jewish people in, in, in a very Jewish context. And yet, she's still Ruth. I mean, she still uh, it says this. When Ben asks the foreman, who's this woman over there? Um, who does she belong to? The foreman says, this young woman is a woman from Moab uh, who came with uh, Naomi. She's still a Moabitess. Um, being in Israel and gleaning the way Torah mandates that she could um, uh, doesn't make her a Jew. Like, she's still an Israelite. Likewise, when someone comes to church, it doesn't automatically make them Christian. I get that. But while Ruth is in Israel, she's afforded all the privileges of an Israelite. She's treated like everybody else. There's not someone flying around saying, so do you want to convert? Do you want to be one of us? Um, Do you want to join? Hey, if you were to die on your way home tonight. (laughs) Too far. Sorry, too far. The Jews were just being Jews while welcoming an outsider to join in and be a part of them. I think this is a pretty great model for church, what church is supposed to be like. Just the church being the church, while also welcoming anyone who wants to come and participate with us. With the hopes of what actually happens next. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any of the other fields. Stay right here behind my young women um, working in the fields. See what part of the fields they're harvesting and then follow them. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Um, Ruth fell on his feet and thanked, uh, thanked him um, warmly. What you have done, uh, uh, what have I done to deserve this kindness? She said, I am only a foreigner. Um, and can you just hear the family story in this? You know, your grandpa was so sweet to me. And he looked so handsome in his harvesting clothes. Like... And I was grandkids are like, goodness, kind of mom. Like, can you hear it? Like, this is a family story. This is a love story. Um, you know, and uh, I just couldn't keep my eyes off of him. Like, you can hear it. Um, but here's what I love about this chapter why I spent so much time on this gleaning thing. The Jewish practices set up by Torah 
put Ruth in the right place to meet her Savior. Um, we have this weird tendency in church to, to feel like someone needs to meet Jesus and then become part of the church. Like they need to meet their Boaz before they, they can be part of the church. We ask for this like huge life-changing commitment. And then we're like, okay, now you're part of us. Now you can act like one of us. Now you can be here with us. Like we try really hard to convince them. Then, once they're convinced, we introduce them to what it means to be church. I honestly like the way Ruth did it better. Um, she followed her person um, into the to the people of God, and she began to partake of the rituals and lifestyle. And and through those people, through that process, she meets Boaz because she was she was invited to be in and be part of it and and be one of them. And while in that space, she met her redeemer. We titled this series Saved by Community um, because of this little piece of the story. Uh, I mean, if we're honest, community does not save us. Uh, nothing but Jesus can save us. Um, only by the sacrifice that he made on our behalf are we redeemed. Um, uh, and, and I bet we would be remiss to ignore the role the community plays in that. The community plays a very real role um, in welcoming people to Jesus. And I'm not talking about dragging them to church um, just so they can, you know, hear a sermon begging them to know Jesus. Uh, I'm talking about our, us forming relationship and life together and then meeting people out there and loving them in such a real way that they want to know who we are and what we're about and then coming here and having such a real community and a real connection and love that, that they want to be a part of that. Um, and, and, and then we, you know, when they come, they're so fully invited into our community and treated like one of us in such a way that, that they're in a place and they're in an a atmosphere and a space where they can meet Jesus. Um, it's not about dragging them in here and, and, and inviting, you know, begging them to know Jesus so we can click a tally on our thing. It's about creating a real atmosphere of love in such a way that somebody has a space where they can do that. But one of the main reasons I don't give a lot of altar calls. It's not because I, I think just coming here is salvation enough. It's not. The relationship with Jesus is essential. Um, but I try to avoid anything that draws a distinction between us and them. I don't think those are healthy. The in crowd, the out crowd, you know, the, um, the insiders, the outsiders. My heart's desire is to be part of a community um, that's taking care of one another and loving one another so well that it creates a, an atmosphere that puts people in the right place to then, to then meet Jesus. Because here's the thing. Boaz sees Ruth long before um, Ruth sees Boaz. He's over on the side, like, asking questions about her and, and who's the hot chick picking up grain over here in the corner, you know. Um, uh, in fact, Ruth, Boaz is actually making a way for Ruth long before she knows he exists. He's back there going, hey, throw a little extra grain out her way. You know, he's taking care of her, you know, before he's even met her. He's already making provisions for her. It reads like this. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain amongst the sheaves without stopping her. And put out some of the heads of barley and, uh, from the bundles and dropped them on purpose for her. Uh, let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. 
I talked last week about how um, when I look back through my story uh, of my experience with Jesus, I can I can note the big moments where I made some big commitments or, or something like that. But I can also look back at times long before that that God was at work in my life, that Jesus was already drawing me and, and, uh, and changing me and, and doing things in my life. Like Boaz was for Ruth. I, I think if generally if someone comes to church, if someone, especially in this culture where there really is no cultural benefit, like you don't get any, you know, like there was a day when if you wanted to do anything in the culture, you had to go to church because no one found out you weren't a church goer. They're not in that day anymore. There's really no cultural benefit to coming to church. You're not going to get any, you know, uh, trophies anywhere for, for being a church goer anymore. That day is pretty much gone. So if somebody wants to come to church, I think their Boaz has been drawing them already. If they want to be here, God is already at work in the story. When someone comes to church, Jesus has been drawing them for a long time. Jesus, their Boaz is already throwing sheaves off the wagon for them. It's not even necessarily our job to introduce them to Jesus. I know that sounds weird to a lot of people. And we're going to talk next week about what role we do have in that process. But mostly, mostly I feel like we create the space where Ruth and Boaz can meet. Um, using our structures and rituals and liturgies and rhythms, we simply act like the church. Not hanging a shiny lure out to try and get people to, to bite, not dangling it in the water trying to snag people, but the real community of God's people. Acting like the actual community of God's people so that other people can join that community and in so doing, meet their Redeemer. So how do we look out of this? Um, the thing I love about this book um, is that it's a love story. I, the Jewish rabbis considered it a prophetic book. The Christian theologians were always treated it like a history book. Um, but if we're honest, this is the story of how a guy falls in love with a girl and they meet. And I'm a sucker for a good romance. Um, and like every good rom-com, it, the, it starts, um, you know, it has this scene today where the star-crossed lovers meet for the first time and it's, and it's electric and you know something, you know where the story is going after this. Um, and I think this is a great metaphor for our salvation story because we make it very theological and, uh, and biblically complicated exactly what transpires, you know, in salvation and exactly, you know, what it takes and how you have to structure the prayer to get into heaven. And we make it all this weird, you know, really complicated thing. But at length, it's about how a lover falls in love with his beloved and does everything he can for her. Uh, and, and maybe today, you're the Ruth character. Maybe today you're Ruth. Maybe, maybe you're loving the atmosphere. You're loving the community. Um, you like being here, but you don't really know about this whole Jesus thing. You have questions about what that means to the rest of your worldview, or you have concerns about what you might have to change in your life, or, or you're nervous about whether you're going to have to act like all those jerks that you've known that are Christians, that you really have to, if I have to be like them, I don't know if I'm into this whole thing. And I get all of that. I do. But I hope you'll hear in this story this utterly human invitation to meet someone great, to meet someone amazing who loves you. Because that's really what it is. Jesus is amazing, and he's been setting things up for you for a long time. Uh, and and, and uh, you're going to want to meet him, I think, because he's awesome. He's worth everything. And I hope you'll stick around long enough to meet him. I really do. 
Um, if you're if you're not sure where you feel in the whole thing, I hope you'll stay and hang out with us. You're not even allowed to say, I don't believe in Jesus. You're still welcome to stay and be with us. That's fine. We don't have like, oh, if you're going to be here, you have to, you know. No, we want you with us. And I hope while you're here, you meet Jesus. I hope you fall madly in love with him because he's amazing. Maybe today you're Bethlehem. Maybe you're not. Maybe you've known Jesus for a long time and you're part of the faith community. You met your Boaz and that's amazing. And now you're wondering what your job is. Was that the whole thing? Was it just about meeting Jesus? Was meeting Jesus the finish line? I say no. You are the community that the world needs. You are the people that, that, the, that the world is hungry for. The hard, this is one of the hardest things to articulate about church. Church is not about learning more and more scripture. It's, it's not about memorizing more and more scripture. It's not about you know, getting as smart as you can. It's, it's not about being the best and loudest worshiper in the room. I, I hold that title. It's not about... <laughs> It's not about living holier and holier so you can win some kind of moral trophy at the end from being a good person. Church is about actually loving the people around you in such a way and doing life together in such a way that these people are your people. And you're building such a a rich and loving community, so authentic and genuine and life-giving that that people want to be part of it. And, and even if they don't believe in Jesus, it should create such a space that it's a blessing to be here, whether you know Jesus or not. Because people are, because love is contagious, and people want to be a part of that, and there's so little of it out there. And then while they're here, hopefully, yes, hopefully they meet Boaz. In the last chapter, Ruth committed to Naomi while in Moab. And in this, in this chapter, she commits to the community. Before she meets Boaz. Because of Torah, the community itself functioned in such a way that Ruth could survive and thrive on the community alone. It's a weird reality. Somebody should, anybody steps in this room, they should be blessed whether they know Jesus or not. Just the atmosphere and the love and the welcome and the inclusion should be so rich in the love of Christ that, that it's a blessing just to be here. It's hard to explain in the context of church, we put so much focus on the relationship with Jesus, and rightfully so, He is everything. I'm not saying that's not right, but but we, we stress that so heavily um, that, that we forget that if we have church right, someone should be blessed just, just to be here. It should greatly improve their life simply by being a part of us, even if they don't know Jesus. Church should never be a bait and switch. It should never be a come to this amazing place. Oh, phew, we got him saved. That should never be our goal. We should never put this glowing advertisement of this great church just so we can hopefully get them across some arbitrary line and say, phew, we got it. Move on to the next. Our focus should actually be living life together as the people of God. Deeply committed to loving God and loving people. And that creates the space where people can meet Jesus. Last week I told you Naomi treated Ruth so well for however long they were together, um, for how long she was Ruth's mother-in-law, that, it, it, that Ruth made this incredible vow to stick with Naomi no matter what. And that puts a lot of pressure on us because it means that the way we treat people 
in our work, in our neighborhoods, in our families could have real impact on their destiny. If Naomi treats Ruth poorly, if she treats her like the, the, the more stereotypic mother-in-law, then, then Ruth may have taken her up on her invitation to go back to her biological family. And there would be no David and then no Jesus. And I know God has ways of working things out, but this is a, this is a, 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 a destined line. And Ruth and Naomi plays a part in that through her kindness, which is huge. Naomi's kindness has eternal implications. Likewise, how we live and love the people in this room should create a space that is so life-giving and so full of blessing that people want to be a part of it. And that space is where they can meet Jesus. And you can't fake that. You can't market or brand that. It has to be a real thing. We have to actually be the church. So the way I'd love to respond to this message, especially for those who have been Christians for a while, by the way, if you're not, if you don't know Jesus and you want to, come talk to me. I would love to introduce him to you. He's amazing. Okay. Mostly, though, I'm talking to those who know Jesus. While we get together, we sing one last song. We gather around the table. Look around this room. We formed this bad habit um, fairly recently in church history of saying we're committed to Jesus but not to organized religion. Anybody ever felt like that? Like, love Jesus, not so happy on the church. Yeah, we've, we've all done that. I've done that. I totally understand that sentiment. The first time it hit me, I was, I was, I didn't even want to be called a Christian anymore. I was like, you can call me a Jesus follower, but Christian comes with so much baggage. Like, I don't want any of that baggage. And, and I swear I felt Jesus say to me, I wish I could do that. I wish I could get rid of the name. I'm kind of stuck with those people, though. Because when the people think of me, they think of all those people. And I was like, fine. <laughs> If you got to be known by the name, I'll keep the name. But I get the sentiment of being like, you know, it's the, it's the structure that grosses me out. But I say all the time when, when the, a perfect God had a perfect human and they were in a perfect environment with no sin, God's response was, this is not good. This is not good for man to be alone. If it was just you and God, you know, I don't need all that other stuff. I don't need all the, just me and God. Last time that happened... And that person wasn't even a sinner yet. You are. But the last time that happened, God was like, no, this is not good. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Just me and Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. We need more. We need community. God doesn't want you to commit to just him alone. He calls you to be a part of a people, to be a part of a community. So fully committed uh, to to that it creates this life-giving space all by itself. Both for you and for anyone else who steps into that space. So the way that, uh, that we do life together has eternal implications. The way Naomi treated, treated Ruth did and the way that Israel was set up, the way the community functioned, had eternal implications. The way we love each other and the space we create together matters. So as we come to the table, look around the room and wrestle with that question. Is this a place I come to or is this my place? It's a big question. Let's go to the table.